even when you knew, when you knew that people were mistreating you, have you ever responded with an attempt to completely change yourself into the person that you thought that they wanted? Like that is a childhood PTSD thing. Completely abandoning yourself to desperately please an abusive person is one of the most destructive adult symptoms of early trauma. Because when someone is abusing you now, the last thing you need is to abandon yourself, to basically deny your perception and give away all your power. So what makes us do that? And what does it look like? Today I'm answering a letter from a woman I'll call Layla. And here's what she wrote. Hi Anna, I'm going through a divorce after 10 difficult months of marriage with my ex-husband. I saw red flags going into the marriage, but I rushed and we got married in only three months because I was afraid to lose the opportunity to marry him. I was worried he would change his mind. I believe I have CPTSD after growing up in a household with a highly critical mother and where affection was only granted if you did exactly what you were told to do. Doing anything different meant love was withdrawn. My husband, or now ex-husband, was never appreciative of the effort I put into our marriage. The things that hurt me didn't matter. My opinions didn't matter. And everything I did was wrong and got criticized. He constantly said that he could do better than being with me, that he deserves someone better since he's handsome and young. I didn't take this as a sign to leave. I took it as a sign to do more. Okay, I'm circling stuff because I'm going to come back and go through this letter after we go through it one time and talk about what you're saying here, Layla. After 10 months of marriage and six months of separation where I tried to reconcile with him, I committed to being more obedient, more respectful, more understanding, and kinder to his family, but he still wasn't satisfied. I felt abandoned and unwanted and worthless to him. So I wrote to Layla uh, an email and just said, could you clarify about this obedient thing? That's kind of unusual. And she said, I practice Islam. I don't wear a hijab, but I do the five daily prayers. Islam helps me find peace, but it is very often used by some to manipulate others. I love my faith and I would like to keep learning and practicing in a tolerant way that never makes others feel excluded. My Islamic values come from my parents. I learned Islam from them as a young child, but they didn't force me to practice. I decided to learn more about the faith on my own in university. I was born and raised in Canada. My ex grew up in the Middle East until he was 25. His family were quite judgmental and harsh with me for not practicing Islam the way they did. In their culture, women are expected to be obedient and quiet. They were highly critical of me and even told me I don't belong in the Arabic community since I was not born in the Middle East. I felt guilt and shame. After this difficult marriage, I still noticed myself wishing I had done something differently and said things differently and then maybe it would have worked out. There were so many situations that I interpreted as abandonment. My, my ex-husband told me to pack a bag and leave the house. And when I left, I went to my parents' house, who then kicked me also out of the house because my mother was very angry that I wanted to work on my marriage and resolve things with him. When I left my parents' house, I went to stay in a hotel for two weeks until they told me it was okay to come back. I went back and again, my mother kept threatening me and emotionally abusing me until it became physically abusive. 
When she hit me, I didn't care about my head and I didn't care that she hit me. I felt like I deserved all the pain that everyone was putting me through. I felt numb. I left their house willingly and paid my brother to stay with him. The divorce is finalized and my mother and I don't keep in such close contact. I'm worried that I just stepped away from all the abuse, but if I were to encounter another abusive situation, I would be very I would very deeply believe I deserved it too. Can you please help me figure out how to heal from abandonment wounds and how to stop ruminating and judging myself for the mistakes I made that caused me to get kicked out of my ex-husband's house and by my parents? Thank you for your insight. Okay, Layla, I am so sorry. This is a horrible situation. And the thing is, I think as much as you're in pain, I think you might not quite realize how, just how badly people have treated you. I'm not sure. So I'm gonna go back through the letter and let's see what we see here. All right. Going through a divorce after 10 difficult months of marriage. And the first thing you told me about this was that you rushed in and got married in only three months because you were afraid to lose the opportunity to marry him and you were worried he would change his mind. So you told me this up front, and I'm glad you did. And what's interesting to me is that this didn't come up again, but I know you know what happened here, like what your part in this is. You just tipped your hand. You rushed in after three months because you were afraid he was going to leave. And... I know about trauma thinking. When you told me down in the letter about your parents, I could see a, a real pattern that had started when you were young and was showing up now. All right. But this fear that you had to hurry up and marry him as if that would work to make him love you and stay with you before he changed his mind. That just, there's so much sadness in that. Then you say, I believe I have CPTSD after growing up in a household with a highly critical mother and where affection was only granted if you did exactly what you were told to do. So I can sure see how you got conditioned to do exactly what other people tell you to do. And there's a time and a place for this, but if it became like the whole way that you do life, and that's the only way you've ever made anything go your way, uh, that would explain what happened in this marriage where you thought you could save the day by doing exactly what he told you to do. So then you said that your ex-husband never appreciated the effort you put into the marriage. You know, Layla, I have a feeling this had nothing to do with the effort you put into the marriage. It sounds like he, well, let's just see what he says here. Uh, things that hurt you didn't matter. Your opinions didn't matter. Everything you did was wrong and got criticized. So what you're describing there is serious self-centeredness. Um, I, I can't diagnose somebody with narcissism, but if somebody, if a spouse doesn't matter and everything they do is wrong and gets criticized, but they married you in three months, it sure points to me like somebody maybe kind of love bombed and then got disinterested and discarded. That is what this looks like. Now, he didn't write to me, I don't know. But what I do know is that it's emotionally abusive. He constantly said that he could do better than being with me. So you married a guy who just kept telling you 
during a 10-month marriage that he could do better than you because he's young and handsome. All right, clues are pouring in now <laughs> what this guy is about. He can do better than you. So it's a little puzzling to me if he thought that, he, that this was not a good match for him. It's hard for me to understand why he married you. Um, but that, I don't have insight into that, so just as well, because I'm going to stay focused on you. Here's what happened with you when he said these horrible things that were kind of deal breaker things to say. I didn't take this as a sign to leave. I took it as a sign to do more. All right, I know that pattern so well. When somebody mistreats you, instead of leaving, you think, I can fix this. I can do more. I can, you know, rig the situation with my behavior and change myself and abandon myself and pretend I'm the person I imagine they want me to be and then they'll love me. And I mean, everybody, has that ever worked? It doesn't work. You can probably delay somebody leaving a little bit or maybe keep them from directly abusing you in the moment. But in the long run, if a marriage isn't based on people loving each other and wanting to be there, you got problems. So that was there from the beginning. And we're going to talk about why did you want to be there in a minute. So then you said, after 10 months of marriage and six months of separation where I tried to reconcile with him, I committed to being more obedient, more respectful, more understanding and kinder. All right. So I'm just imagining when you two were fighting and he was saying he wasn't happy with you, he was saying, you're not obedient, you're not respectful, you're not understanding, you're not kind to his family. I don't know you, but those could be adjectives that you would say when you were trying to control somebody and they were resistant to being controlled. And you say he wasn't satisfied, even though you tried to do these things. You felt abandoned, unwanted, and worthless to him. Yeah, that sounds pretty reasonable. So then when I asked you about that in the letter, like, why were you trying to be more obedient? Then you explained that you practice Islam and you were trying to match his brand of Islam, which is very traditional. But you know what? It's not traditional to, <laughs> to marry somebody and then just tell them how awful they are and how you could do better. That's not traditional at all. I'm sure it's not Islam. And it sounds like you have a, um, you don't wear a hijab, you do do the prayer. So you have a strong faith in spirituality. You've found groundedness in this. And, you know, you're saying you learned it from your parents and your parents were people who also devalued you and didn't give you any love unless you did exactly what they wanted. So if, if by contrast to his family, your family is so nice, that says so much about his family. Because what you said about your family, the critical, the criticism, and then later the physical abuse, it doesn't quite mesh with what you're telling me about their brand of faith and that their faith was inclusive and tolerant. They weren't tolerant of you and they threw you out of the house. They weren't inclusive of you. This is so, it's a very painful letter. And, uh, and I want to be gentle because it seems a little bit like it's so bad that you haven't quite faced it, that this has been happening. So you say, my Islamic values come from my parents. Learned them as a young child. You weren't forced to practice, so you got to choose it, which is great. I decided to learn more about my faith in university. Okay. And your ex grew up in the Middle East until he was 25, so totally different culture, right? So they were quite judgmental and harsh with you for not practicing Islam as they did. In their culture, women are expected to be obedient and quiet. Um, and I, you know, I, I really don't judge that you would want to go into a traditional religion and you'd be drawn to that orderly 
way of life that, that's reverent towards things and has meaning built in. I don't judge that. What I judge is that they totally denigrated you, that they didn't respect the marriage that had happened. And Layla, I can't help but wonder if there's a piece of the story either that you couldn't tell me or that you don't see yet about, you know, what, what was the big conflict for them? Weren't they, did they not give their blessings to the wedding in the first place? What was it that drove your husband to marry you when he had these horrible attitudes towards you? So it just, the impression I get from the outside is just that you went in in good faith and they just totally turned against you and just shoved you out of the family and a divorce came down and it's not what you wanted, which is interesting. We're going to get to that. So, but you, you got into something where women are expected to be obedient and quiet. And when the guy starts emotionally abusing you, you tried to be more obedient and more quiet. And I'm trying to look for the analogy of what that sounds like where somebody annihilates their own personality and their own autonomy to try to get an abusive person to like them. Maybe trauma bonding, <laughs> maybe Stockholm syndrome, right? Then you say, after this, after this difficult marriage, I still notice myself wishing I had done something differently and said things differently and that it w would have worked out. So here's where you have um, a notion that you possibly had control over the situation if you just could have turned into a different person and been, been different, said different things, and then it would have worked out that he would have loved you if you were not you. And I'm just going to phrase it that way because that is such CPTSD thinking. They would love me if I could not be me. <laughs> and I've noticed this in um, some people who, like where parents said, I wish you were never born. They get so good at trying to, you know, chameleon themselves and change into something they think the parent will accept that they literally can't remember who they are. And Layla, I think that might have started to happen with you. And it's very important that we just stop that process right now. So let's go through the letter. Um, there were so many situations that I interpreted as abandonment. I don't think you interpreted. I think this is a case where you literally were abandoned. Your ex-husband told you to pack a bag and leave the house. And I don't know what prompted that, but yes, you were kicked out of the house. And when you left to stay at your parents' house, they also kicked you out for a different reason. And it was because you wanted to work on the marriage and resolve things with him. So I take it your parents thought he was a real ass and they really, really didn't want you with him. And what I'm seeing in your letter here is there's a little bit of maybe cognitive dissonance where your parents are doing and saying things and the family is doing saying things that says something really bad has happened but your mind keeps thinking no if i would just change myself i think i could fix this and i know how trauma like makes a person think that i know it's not crazy i know it's not your fault i know it comes from that injury that happened to you through the way you were treated when you were a kid but i think to outside people perhaps it looks so irrational that it's frightening and that perhaps the, and I'm guessing that the conflict between you and your ex-husband was pretty messy and leaked over and created a lot of drama throughout the family. And they had some sort of vested interest in you not going back to that. Because I can't imagine parents being that intense about you not going back to somebody unless the abuse was even more serious than you're telling me. I think, it's, I think, I think that's possible that you're not able to express it or see it yet. Then you said when you left your parents' house, you went to stay in a hotel for two weeks until they let you come back. So you wanted to go back home. You wanted to return. They wouldn't let you. 
because of what you wanted. And you went back and again your mother kept threatening you and emotionally abusing you until it became physically abusive. Now this is, wow, that's really bad. I know what it is to have a, a loved one in an abusive relationship and to feel desperate to help them get out of it. It is very hard. When a person is being abused, sometimes they can be so irrationally drawn back into the abuse that even when the whole family helps to coordinate, you know, an exit or a break or something that can calm the relationship down and give a little air for people to think, that even then an abused person, for somebody who doesn't get it, who hasn't themselves been abused, they look like they are indifferent, disrespectful, just being crazy, you know, just like, no, no, I'm going to go back. I don't care that you did all this for me. So I'm only trying to guess, like, why would your mother be so angry with you? This is to the point that she physically abused you. I'm not going to blame you for it. Something's wrong with anybody who does that. But I'm just wondering, like, what were her motives? And then you say, when she hit you, you didn't care about your head and you didn't care that she hit you. You felt like you deserved all the pain that everybody was putting you through. You felt numb. Okay, there it is. There's the clue that somehow little Layla let in this idea of not being good and that somebody being endlessly critical, never accepting, never praising, uh, never giving approval unless you did exactly as you were told. There was no room for your personality. Maybe, maybe you didn't get to develop it. I've noticed, you know, I'm not a therapist, I'm not a, a researcher, but I've just noticed that a lot of times when people have been traumatized and in myself, it's as if our development, our maturation gets slowed down. It gets, it's, I don't think it's as magical as getting stuck at a certain age in our lives, but it gets slowed down and there's, there's this incredible toughness and kind of old soul maturity to us. And at the same time, an emotional immaturity that's, that just says, you know, I'll, I'll change myself. I want to go back into the abusive situation with the man, with my mom. I'll go back in. I'll change myself. Why is this happening? And why it's happening is because you think you deserve it and because you're numb. You can't feel it, which by the way, is a symptom you didn't cause, but you, I want to help you, um, heal that, help you get unnumb and it's painful, not, you know, facing what's really happening. But if you weren't numb, you'd be seeing this is nothing for you to be in. And that's a tough situation. Going out on your own and having no shelter with family, you had to pay your brother to stay with him for a while. Um, maybe what you mean is you, you shared the rent or something. I don't know. But the way you phrased it uh, is that you paid your brother to stay with him. I, I just get the picture of a young woman alone, adrift, unsupported, trying to make sense of everything and having a, a, a traumatized mind that can only, sees only one option, to somehow change into who you imagine they demand that you be, that you become exactly who they're telling you to be. But you know what, Layla, I don't hear anybody telling you to be anything right now. I think, I think whatever they think about you doesn't matter at this point. This is a crisis for you to begin to take steps towards the life that you want. Now you said the divorce is finalized and you and your mother don't keep such close contact. Well, in a way, good. You know, perhaps you and your mother can uh, be healed later. Something can be worked out then. I'm really glad this ex is out of your life. I hope you can allow that to be for good. Don't make contact. Let it go. 
and you're worried, you are worried that you just stepped away from all the abuse, but if you were to encounter another abusive situation, you would very deeply believe you deserved it too. So there you go. There's your wise self knowing what your next step is. You need to work with that piece of you that feels like you deserve abuse. There's something in you that is carrying a lot of shame and guilt and self-attack so that when people do this to you, there's something about it that makes sense. And there's something about it that paralyzes you and doesn't give you a, um, you know, when you're healed, Layla, and somebody does this, treats you this way, you're going to go, don't you dare treat me this way. You will fight back because it's rational and it's right. You will fight back. So that fight in you has been suppressed by your belief that you're only going to get loved. So you said, can you, can I help you figure out how to heal from abandonment wounds? And that is exactly what's going on here. You have abandonment wounds. And that's why it's so hard not to try to cling to the relationship that you know is just blah. And how to stop ruminating and judging yourself for the mistakes you made that caused you to get kicked out of your ex-husband's house. I didn't hear any mistakes. I don't know. Maybe there were some mistakes, um, but from what you told me, it was not, you got kicked out for reasons that didn't have to do with you. <laughs> Did he impulsively marry you against his parents' wishes? Did they threaten him or something with, I don't know. Something was happening there that does not appear to have anything to do with you. And you can, you know, get into the comments and correct me if I'm wrong. Really, did you do something to bring that on? Those are not your mistakes. You know what's funny is when people's self-esteem is really hurt, this is not funny, but what's odd is that when self-esteem is super low, a person can think that she can, you know, she can cause everything to get better or that it was her fault it got so bad. And in a weird way, that's very grandiose, right? that you made everybody reject you. And I'm just telling you, like in ordinary families, everybody kind of has a vested interest in doing their best with the spouses of the young people in the family. And in such a short time and with the stuff that he was saying, I don't know, something is very, very wrong with this picture. I hope you fought back. I hope the things that you think are mistakes are when you said, hey, screw you people. You don't get to treat me this way. I was not created to be this for you, like a punching bag to put down and to exclude. Now, Layla, let's talk about what you can do to start changing your life. I'm going to encourage you to go ahead and let all contact stop with your husband. That sounds healthy and rational. I'm going to encourage you to hold on pause your relationship with your mom because of the physical abuse. It sounds like she may have some best interest at heart for you, but right now that relationship sounds really harsh. It's time for you to have some independence. It's time for you to start to finally have the space to be who you are, not defined by the parents criticizing you or the husband criticizing you and trying to please them. So I know you have a couple things. You've been to university, you have a faith that you love, and I assume those are two communities where you have friends, you have somewhere to go. I would also recommend, if you are not already in therapy, I think having a therapist would be a very important thing right now. What you've been through is so traumatic that being with somebody who's trustworthy and knowledgeable and who is there for you, like for weekly appointments, to help you make sense of what happened and to really hold a space for you to figure out like, who are you? What do you actually want in your life? What does this look like? Um, what does it mean the way you, you want to keep getting drawn like a moth to the flame into very bad situations where you get hurt and you, and you get destroyed? 
and, and then to start taking steps to make that better. Whether it's through your faith or 12-step groups or counseling or some existing friends you have from your past, I really encourage you to have a group of women friends who you can spend time with, people who get together sometimes and laugh and talk to each other about what's really going on and who support each other and who you can call and text at 10 o'clock at night when something bad has happened and you have so much pain coming up. I think when you've been in a terrible relationship of any kind, and this sounds like a trauma bonding type thing, there's always going to be a period of withdrawal. And you can think of it like a drug addiction. It's not really the same thing, but it has a lot of the same characteristics. Is a lot of the function of the drama of an abusive relationship is that it keeps you away from deep, sad feelings that come up. And it happens to everybody, like sadness is in everybody, but having been through what you have been through, just accept, it's okay, you're gonna have sadness. There's nothing wrong with being sad. It, it can be too much to deal with sometimes, but that's why I'm suggesting you support yourself with people, like just like like pad your life with good people who care about you and have your best interest and who are willing to listen to you and support you. And you still have plenty of time to have your life unfold in a positive way that fits who you really are. And, and, and on your way from where you are right now to things getting better, you're gonna have all these experiences of friendships and happy things and hard things and sad things and times when you're scared and times when you don't know you're gonna make it, times when you feel depressed. And it's all okay, it's all part of it. Because what you're free to do right now is let your life unfold and become populated with the people who fit you and the activities that fit you and you're only beginning to find out what that's gonna feel like, but I think you're gonna like it. I think you're gonna like it. So just build it into the plan. There are going to be sad times. There's gonna be times when you feel like, oh, you've just gotta contact that ex-husband. That's the trauma talking. I, I really can honestly not see any scenario where contacting him would lead to anything good or constructive for you emotionally, but that's when you have a therapist, your therapist is gonna help you with that. I have some friends and we help each other eat healthy. And we have a shared concept together called bunny slippers. And bunny slippers, I don't even own a pair of bunny slippers, but we tell each other, hey, bunny slippers. And that means put on your comfy slippers and treat yourself very gently today. When you're having a hard time, when you feel like you can't get through something, bunny slippers, all right? I would love for you to come take my free course, The Daily Practice, it's always linked down below in the description section. And I teach these techniques where you can take these harsh feelings that come up and you can just take them out onto paper using this very specific technique. These are the techniques that help me come, come out of my deep trauma back in the day. And uh, I offer them free to anybody in the world who wants to try them. And we have free calls every two weeks where we use the techniques together. I take questions. I'd love to meet you there. It's always a pleasure when I've answered somebody's letter on a YouTube video and then they show up in a call and I'm like, is that you? Hi, <laughs> I just want to do a virtual hug. You can do that. We're a place you can come. And so for people, for people who have professional help and friends and people who don't have those things, having tools and techniques that you can use anytime to help calm those intense emotions is such a good thing to have. And all you need to do it is some paper and a pen, and I keep them in my purse all the time. That's one of the ways that I take care of myself, and you can too, where you just know you're in a bunny slipper phase of life, always have pen and paper on you so that you can use these techniques to just you know let it out a little bit, let it out a little bit. 
And then that gives you some freedom to kind of handle, you, you know, when you're out at, at a dinner party or uh, shopping somewhere and the feelings are coming up and you're panicking and you're getting triggered. You have a way always at your fingertips to bring that back down and to be able to carry on and finish the shopping or, or say goodnight gracefully to your hosts or whatever you're doing. You have freedom now. It's a little bit like having a tank of oxygen for a scuba diver. You can go into this world that's not always easy for you and you know you can breathe and you know you can come back out. You'll be able to get, get free from it. Loneliness can grind you down so hard that when you finally meet someone, you can be primed to completely shut your eyes to the red flags that are wrapping themselves around your face. And if you weren't loved properly as a child, you may have a superpower for this kind of denial. Because when it's happening, it feels like your whole life depends on keeping the feeling of being loved on tap, even when it's not love. And even when the person you're hooked on shows every sign of bringing grief and trouble into your life. My letter today is from a woman I'll call Tracy and she writes, Hello, Anna. I've watched all your videos and they really help me stay calm during my new boyfriend's dysregulation. We're only one month in, and at the start, he was all for me, an extremely positive, happy, passionate, and engaged. Then he read a letter from his impending court case from three years of childhood sexual abuse, and he has gone very, very quiet, saying he needs to get the demon off his shoulder and get back to a version of himself he's happy for me to see. All right, I'm circling this, some things I see here. I'm going to read it all the way through so we can hear what you're saying, Tracy, and then I'm going to go back through and respond to some of the things I circled and see if I can help. Okay. So it's been a fortnight and I'm starting to wonder what should I do? Do you have any advice? Currently, I'm answering his breadcrumbs of hello, babe, every few days without a delay to make sure he knows I haven't abandoned him. He has said four days ago, you're not going anywhere, are you? As much as I'd understand if you did, XXX. And I responded by saying, I was in it for the long haul and take all the time you need. Yesterday, I messaged him saying I was thinking of him and I was hoping he had a good day, but it was left on read. He tried to kill himself four times once, just a month before he met me. He also has five kids who, ha who he has every second week, who he loves dearly. Is that what you suggest I give him, more time? It's such early days, and we obviously don't have the background of discussions about this at all. It, it just hits so fast. I'm a little desperate and lost not knowing what to do, but until I hear from you, I'll give him time, patience, kindness, and understanding. Thank you so much. This is all very new to me. All right. Thank you, Tracy. I think I can help you. All right. This sounds like a very dangerous and terrible situation for you. And this is going to be a tough love letter. But Tracy, I think you're gravely in denial about what's going on here and what is needed here. I'll tell you why. All right. You're one month into dating someone. That's like nothing, really. That's getting to know them a couple times. 
Um, it sounds like you have a sexual relationship or you wouldn't have be taking it so seriously. But one month in is, you know, you really can't make any decision about whether it's a fit or this is a person for you or anything, even if they were wonderful and totally ready for a relationship. So he was all great and he was happy and passionate and engaged. And then he read a letter from his impending court case for three years of childhood sexual abuse. So I assume it's a prosecution of the abuser. Uh, you know, uh, abusers need to be prosecuted, but I think it can do a terrible, terrible number on the people who are um, who were abused and who have to show up for court and testify about that and open the whole thing and prove the legitimacy of what they're saying. And, um, you know, there's really not an easy way to do that. So he's gone very quiet and saying he needs to get the demon off his shoulder. So he's saying he has a demon on his shoulder right now. And he, so that he can get back a version of himself that he's happy for you to see. So he's in some terrible state that he doesn't want you to see. Um, and he's also abandoned the relationship. Just saying, okay, Tracy, he's not with you anymore. And you don't know when, and he's not really talking. Okay. So it's been two weeks, and I've started to wonder, what should I do? He's saying breadcrumbs of hello, babe. You respond without a delay to let him know that you haven't abandoned him. So you know what, when you've been dating for a month, you can't really abandon somebody. It's not like that. Abandonment, I mean, really abandonment refers to something that happens to a kid. And I'm just gonna intuit from your letter here that you have some serious abandonment stuff. And you know, if he got abused and it's only come to light now, then somebody abandoned him, didn't stand up for him when he was young. So these are people with abandonment issues. And I get that you wanna reassure him but you can't be there for somebody who isn't in your life, all right? This is, if this were a, a long-standing relationship, if you guys had a committed relationship, if you lived together, were married, had children, but here's what you tell me. He says, oh my goodness, you haven't gone anywhere. I'd understand if you did. And you say you're in it for the long haul. So Tracy, why are you in it for the long haul? Can you wait like at least till you've been seeing somebody a year before you say you're in it for the long haul. That's called a life commitment. So you're not in a place where you can do that. You're, this, these are the rash proclamations of somebody with a great big attachment wound who has totally attached to somebody and who is maybe attaching even harder because he's abandoned you. And again, I get it, like he can't be there for you right now. But then you said he tried to kill himself four times once just a month before he met you. So if you were together four weeks and now it's been two weeks and a month before he met you, so that's what, 10 weeks ago? 10 weeks ago, he tried to kill himself four times. Okay, this is the tough love. Somebody who's in that fragile estate and who has tried four times, this is, he's in big danger, honey. He's big, big danger. Danger for you to be around, danger for him to have a relationship that presents itself as like, oh, I'm totally here for you. You can't possibly be there for somebody you don't know. And it's not fair to promise that to somebody. Take it from me, I'm somebody who has made a similar decision and I regret it so much. It's so bad for a person who's suicidal to have a whirlwind relationship. It's so bad and so unstable. And you know, it can't possibly work out in a way that fixes them, it can't. He may heal one day, but he's gonna do that. It's gonna be this huge inside job. And he may, I don't know what his relationship to this court case is. I don't know if he initiated it or got dragged into it, 
But I do know that even though justice may be done towards the perpetrator, it's not going to fix the hurts that happened to him. He's got a world of trouble here. All right. And, and then as if getting together with a guy who just tried to kill himself four times, this is a, like a savior mission for you. He has five kids who come see him regularly. So this is somebody who needs to preserve life so much for those kids. And um, getting into a whirlwind relationship with somebody with attachment wounds is the last way that he can keep his life stable. It's not stable. It's going to be a big rush of, you know, woo in love and then, you know, can't work out. And I will say this is, you know, his, his attachment style here of going way in and then way out. That's a disorganized attachment style. That is common for people who were abused like he was. So it's not his fault that he's like that, but it's not a workable relationship for you. And a person can heal from that stuff, but he is not at that time right now where he's like any day now going to come out like, all right, I've got it now. I can really give a proper commitment to you. That's not what's happening. So basically, I'm just trying to say you're not going to get what you want here. And more importantly, you could possibly hurt and destabilize this person who's on the very edge of survival. And I want you not to do that. And so what I would suggest to you, since you ask, is that you very gently just step back. Just let him drift away from you. He's, he's not calling you. He's leaving you your texts unread. And that's perfect. You can just let it go. Just let it go. And one day he might get in touch and you can very lightly and gently just say, ah, you know, I don't think I can right now. The more time that passes that he's not trying to be in a relationship with you, the more, the easier it's going to be for you to just kind of hold a boundary away from him with kindness, with praise for him. Just like, yeah, I don't think I can get into a relationship right now with what's going on. I, I really wish you healing. I hope it goes really well. So, you know, that's as kind as you can be. What's not kind is putting emotional demands on somebody to like be there for you. And you're not, you're sitting there, you're saying, oh, I'll just sacrifice everything I need and just wait for the guy and text him promptly. But I don't want you to do that, Tracy, because I'm interested in you and I want you to be interested in you. He's working out his stuff. He's not, he's not relationship material at this time in his life. But if you would like to have a relationship, the shortest route to it is to heal your trauma wounds, the ones that have you deciding to get into a relationship when you hear the, the terrible, you know, I, I can't think of any kind of trouble that would be worse in a potential partner than that they were suicidal. That's not, it's not a person to get together with. That's a fantasy that you can rescue. And just trust me, you can't, this is something he's going to work out. He's hopefully because of this court case going to have access to professional help and, and deal with it that way without this complication of a fantasy whirlwind romance. Okay. So I suspect that's not what you hope to hear, but you asked Tracy. And I think a lot of people have had this experience of kind of rushing into a situation. You know, a lot of times people who are suicidal, they don't tell you that at first. And, um, you know, I ended up in such a relationship and it, it ended quite badly and it was devastating to my life. It took, took me about two years before I was emotionally on my feet again after that. And I don't wish that on anyone. When you do get into a relationship, there are specific qualities you should be looking for and you need to prepare yourself for that relationship. And to prepare yourself for that relationship, you have to be very clear, like what is a good partner and how will I know? What is the process by which I'll be able to discern if they're that person for me? 
When your parents didn't love you properly, that feeling of falling in love and then being thrown into insecurity and doubt because the other person pulls away from you can have a spooky, deep, profound kind of meaningfulness to you. And it's very easy to confuse that dark feeling with something it most definitely is not, and that's love. A key sign when people are being manipulated and lied to and lying to themselves is that they say they're confused. I hear that so much in letters. And that confusion just might be the strong and resilient part of you sensing that you've fallen again into the self-deceptive dark water of limerence. Limerence is an obsessive infatuation with somebody you can't really be with, where it kind of takes over your life, thinking about them, thinking about how the future would be, thinking about the perfect thing to say to them, but never really disclosing how you feel because you're holding on to this weird addictive energy of hope. You know if you said something, it would go away. So my letter today is from a woman I'll call Gina, and she writes, Hi, Anna. I have had a very bad childhood being raised by a narcissistic mom. My father's an alcoholic and was emotionally and physically unavailable, coming in and out of my life. Okay, that's a, quite the setup. I'm going to use my fairy pencil to circle things that I want to come back to in a second reading. Let's go through and read Gina's letter and see what's going on. Uh, I have anxious attachment as a, as a result. Anxious attachment style is uh, it's, uh, it's a style of attaching to people in adulthood that's often from a wound, an attachment wound during childhood, where you weren't able to safely attach to a parent and trust them. And it can lead so many of us to do quirky things, either clinging or avoiding. Anxious attachment can lead to relationship problems. I have had a pattern of dating narcissistic men and emotionally unavailable men. Not surprising. I've been doing a lot of therapy to break the pattern. Last year, I was on vacation in another country, and I met a very charming, recently divorced man. We dated briefly, and it got physical. At first, he was communicating with me daily, then every three to four days, then every 10 to 12 days. I went back to my country, and he barely communicated with me. I was initiating contact and he would respond, but then I wouldn't hear from him for a long time. I returned to his country to do some work for a year. It was confusing. There it is. Confusion. It was confusing because he had reinstated the conversation and seemed excited to see me again. However, he made no effort or gesture to see me the first month I was back while we were at a close distance. He would keep sending a message when he wouldn't hear from me, but still no plans made. My anxious attachment had been badly activated the whole time I had met him. It got to the point where I was constantly checking my phone, lost weight, and had insomnia. I finally sent a text after he sent me another message after 10 days of no news. I said that we should terminate the connection as I felt he wasn't interested. I said perhaps we could reconnect again if he was able to be consistent. He responded by saying that he didn't want a relationship. Dun dun. However, he wanted to orient toward a relationship with me if we kept being in touch. <sighs> he then expressed interest in meeting face to face to finally have a chat. And I said yes, but then I changed my mind because something felt off. I didn't believe that he was being genuine by saying he wanted a relationship with me. I also felt that he might have been seeing someone else the whole time and was keeping me on the back burner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I texted him saying I changed my mind about meeting up, saying it wasn't necessary. 
I said there were red flags for me. He insisted on meeting face to face and said I was drawing hasty conclusions. I got angry and still felt feel guilty about my next actions. I sent a last text saying I sensed a lack of respect for me and some bullshit. I also added that I felt he was keeping me as an option on ice. I said the other red flag was his emotional unavailability. I went ahead and blocked him while he was typing his response. But then my anxious attachment style was so bad I couldn't control myself. I was barely getting sleep. I saw him on a date with another woman three weeks later in town. On the one hand, I have never communicated my needs and boundaries to men in relationships, so it felt like an accomplishment. I also never get angry like that and blow up at people. I'm very agreeable and accommodating. On the other hand, I still feel terrible and guilty months later as I didn't give him a chance to respond and reacted in a childish manner by blocking him. I regret and feel like a bad person. I also still feel that perhaps I misjudged the situation as well. And maybe he really wanted to be with me afterwards. I keep thinking perhaps I miss the love of my life. I get badly triggered and nostalgic each time I see him around town. How do I move past this situation and finally let go? It seemed I tried to break my pattern, but still feel terrible. Signed, Gina. Okay, Gina, I know what to do here. Wow. I'm so sorry this is happening. Um, with a narcissistic mom and an alcoholic dad, physically, emotionally unavailable, coming in and out of your life. Yes, you have anxious attachment. So here's, there's two words in anxious attachment. And I hear you taking a lot of responsibility for the anxious part, but I think where you're getting into trouble is with the attachment part. So anxious attachment gives us this capacity, it, the, the, what you're talking about, and this is so common for people who have been abused and neglected as kids, is somebody mistreats you and you you set a boundary like part of you is rational when that first happens and then the abandonment melange kicks in and you can't hold that boundary you can't hold it and so your mind starts playing tricks on you and go actually he's the love of your life actually you're a bad person and you should feel bad actually you are being terribly unfair but what i was reading is oh my gosh this guy is a scoundrel and um, not, not a good situation at all. You gave it so many chances, so many chances. But what I like, Gina, is that your intelligent inner voice is there talking to you. It's there, it's just that you keep second guessing it. So, let, so what do I mean by that? Let's see. So you met him on a vacation, recently divorced man, maybe, right? Maybe recently divorced. That feeling you had that he is with somebody else, I would put money on it. The pattern of him being all into you sometimes and then you're in the same town and he won't see you, that is somebody who's with somebody else. I, I, you know, all of us here, we can only guess, but, but if I had to put money on it, that is definitely what I would say. <clears throat> and then you went back to your country and he barely communicated with you. So that's not a good sign, but okay. And then you initiated contact and then you wouldn't hear from him for a long time. That is a guy who's not into you, all right? Just plain and simple. If, a, if you're getting in touch with a guy and he just blows you off and doesn't answer for long periods of time, he's not interested in you romantically. I think acquaintances do that sometimes. It's no big deal, but if you just had sex with somebody, that's very bad etiquette, and it definitely means a lack of romantic seriousness. So then you say, I was confused, and that's, I've been talking a lot about this. Confusion is often the feeling that somebody in a addictive or limerent relationship, that's what they feel because 
they they're seeing one thing with their eyes, but they're their sort of trauma wound is telling them something quite different. It's like, this guy's treating me badly. No, you're treating him badly. And that's where you go like, I'm confused. Who's, who's wrong here? But that's why it's so good. You write to somebody else and I can tell you, you know what, I'm looking at this from the outside and it looks pretty clear what's happening. So you moved back to where he was to do some work for a year. And I'm just gonna ask you, did you really do it just to do work or were you trying to be around him? Not that you did anything wrong, but I think it's really helpful to be honest with yourself. It's, I, I, if I had to put money on it, I would guess that you were just hoping you could get things going again with him because it really got to you. You were in that magic dark water that I mentioned at the beginning of this. You went into this limerence, like somehow if you could just redeem this relationship and make it go, like everything would be okay. All this distress inside that comes up around your anxious attachment, it would all be okay. But I'll tell you something, as a person who also has anxious attachment, getting married to somebody who was into me did not fix the anxious attachment. Over time, it has subsided. Over time, enough has changed and I've had enough healing that it's no longer driving me and I feel more securely attached. But I would just warn you, like a relationship will not fix you on this one. Getting the man will not fix you and definitely you know, if the man is just being like standoffish, it's probably going to kick up your wounds stronger. And that's the thing. If you have anxious attachment and you get into a relationship with somebody who's like aggravating it and making you genuinely feel anxious and insecure all the time, it's probably going to make your anxious attachment worse. So it's like for the long term of your healing, it's best to stay away from people who treat you like that. And I know that's easier said than done, but it's not good for you. It's like it's just like opening up a wound, opening up a wound, opening up a wound. The best course of action is to take a period of healing, to be very, very deliberate about your healing, not just like, you know, like not having a re relationship doesn't fix you all by itself either. It's the first step toward doing the work, which would be to have tools that you use to get very honest with yourself about what your pattern is, to work on changing that pattern and doing that with the support of other people. Tools and support, that is the magic formula to change something. And I'll tell you, these attachment wounds are deep. They're very deep. They're, they're you know, it's not like a quick fix. It takes consistency. It takes re really remaining in friendship with your friends on the path with you towards healing and changing the pattern. And there are many women who have a similar pattern, who they're working on it, who, who you can be friends with. And what a positive thing that is. That's why I'm always talking about 12-step fellowships, because that's where you can meet them and support each other. Okay. So your anxious attachment was badly activated the whole time you were with them. And so, yeah, and that might happen in the best of circumstances, but it definitely happens when somebody keeps ghosting you. 10 days ghosting. Oh, geez. That's not cool. So then, um, so then you, you said that we should terminate the connection and you felt because he wasn't interested. And so I will just say right here, I'm going to nitpick here, that a lot of the ways that you communicate with him sound a little bit like you're more trying to go, are you sure you don't want to come around because I'm going to leave? You know, I think we should end it because you're not interested. Instead of, I want to end this because this is just like not fun for me. I'm not happy. This isn't making me feel loved and secure. So I'm going by. And it's not a manipulation. It's actually like you standing up for what makes you happy. And I know it's another thing that's easier said than done. But I want to put that in front of you that when you say I'm leaving because you're not giving me this thing I want. It's like an invitation for a romantic manipulator to get in there and go, I'll say the thing you want. And he did. And you said, oh, well, maybe we can connect again if he's able to be consistent. And, you know, 
sitting where I sit in life now, I totally understand like trying to negotiate something like that. If you change, we can be together. And I, you know, like it sounds really good and true, but it's just like, he's shown you who he is. He's shown you who he is. And so him being consistent doesn't fix it. What's going to work as a relationship is somebody who's like, wow, I'm really excited to know you, Gina. I'm inter I'm attracted to you. I would like to spend time with you. Hey, can you, can you spend some time, you know, this weekend or, you know, they, they put effort in because they like you. And you might think, oh, I just don't attract guys like that. But you can, if you're not all entangled with the other kind, with this kind of messy thing that takes your self-esteem and kind of puts a gray cloud over it and makes you kind of, you know, it's not attractive. And, you know, no matter how much we pretend that we're fine or, you know, we act like the breezy cool girl, our nervous system is communicating where we really are at all times. And people who are healthy, their nervous system can sense that. So other people are attracted when you genuinely feel okay about where you are, when you genuinely respect yourself enough not to date jerks and not to have them lingering in your life. That is attractive and you might be surprised who becomes interested in you when you clear all those people out of your life. That is part of my dating course. I give, you know, step-by-step -step instructions on how to do that, how to clear away the people who don't belong because either you have feelings or they do, but you don't both have feelings. You're not in a constructive mutual relationship. He admitted, I don't want a relationship. Okay. That's when I read that, I said, uh -uh, da -da. that is, there it is the truth. He doesn't want a relationship. Now this is one that really goes, I have a download on things romantic uh, manipulators say, I'll give it to you at the end of this video. And um, this is like, has to be added. It's so clever. However, I don't want a relationship, but I would like to orient toward a relationship if we keep being in touch. Now, if that isn't a bookmark, I don't know what is to try to set you up to hope that he will want a relationship if you keep seeing him and either feeding his um, vampiric need for romantic attention through all these texts or actually getting together and having sex. But again, I'm very convinced this guy has somebody else, um, perhaps a wife, and he is keeping you on the back burner. So here's you. Here's where your inner voice knows. He wanted to have a chat. You said, yes, but then you changed your mind. It fell off. Good girl. That's right. It's off. I didn't believe that he was being genuine. No, he's not. He was saying he wanted a relationship with me. Nope. He didn't say he wanted a relationship with you. He said he wanted to hang out and get face to face and orient toward a relationship. Oh dear. Oh dear. Just so for the record, when a man is into you, he will want a relationship with you. Okay. If he doesn't want to, if he says he doesn't want a relationship, just believe it. That is it. If he's saying maybe later he will, that's a bookmark. Don't, you know, that's not good enough. That's not good enough for beautiful you. You need somebody who wants a relationship right now and is doing the effort right now to get to know you, who is willing to pay attention to what your boundaries are, who's willing to notice like what's hard for you, what's easy for you, what makes you happy, what food you like, and who, who invites you to eat some of that food, who pays attention, right? Who's excited when it's your birthday, who has an idea for your birthday. That's a guy who's into you. So just use that as a reference point or the birthday thing. That's always like, if you use one thing, the birthday. So then you said, I also felt he might've been seeing someone else the whole time and was keeping me on the back burner. Yes, yes, yes. There's your radar. And you texted him saying, I ch you changed your mind about meeting up. And you said it wasn't necessary. You said there were red flags. Okay. You don't have to explain yourself. When you set a boundary, you don't need to explain yourself. Those are an invitation for a manipulative person. You're basically telling them, 
here's what's the deal breaker for me. Would you like to do what you will with it? You know, and he insisted on meeting face to face and said that you were drawing hasty conclusions and you got angry and you blocked him. You sent a last text saying that you sensed a lack of respect and some bullshit. Um, and I, and you also added, I felt he was keeping me as an option on ice. And the other, the other red flag was emotional unavailability. So you went ahead and blocked him while he was typing. And, but then your anxious attachment style was so bad you couldn't control yourself, you couldn't sleep. Yeah, you went into like full meltdown like a child would if they had run away from home, right? That was the emotional experience that you were having. That's not the physical reality of what you were doing. You were a self-respecting woman just saying, I don't wanna date you. You just like, I've been miserable this whole time because you ghost me, you're, you just say one thing and you do another and I feel like you're seeing somebody else and you're holding me on ice. Like that's terrible. You don't wanna be in a relationship who makes, like when the relationship you wanna be in is the one that makes you feel good. You're like, this is good, I like this, I'm happy where you become a better version of yourself, not a scared, anxious version of yourself. And I know, like, I'm going to emphasize again, the relationship won't fix you. But generally, when you're trying to evaluate who's, who's a good match for you, people who are a good match, like things work. There's nothing to hide. There's nothing shameful about it. You don't sit for 10 days wondering what happened. If they're interested in you, they'll, they will call. So then you went into all this guilt and you think you misjudged it. And this is such a classic, classic complex PTSD reaction that comes from that abandonment wound. Abandonment melange, Pete Walker's word for people who were actually abandoned, which you were by your parents. When anything reminds you of abandonment, like the end of a relationship. And I just want to make a distinction, like abandoning a child and leaving a child. What was it with your parents? Narcissistic mom, alcoholic dad, emotionally, physically unavailable coming in and out of your life. That is genuine abandonment. When you're an adult woman, people can't really abandon you. You know, maybe in a lifeboat situation or something, but they can't really abandon you. They can decide not to get involved with you. They can get involved and break up and it triggers old abandonment wounds. And so, you know, people can argue with me about that. I, yeah, it's, you know, if you have small kids, if you were sick, there's all kinds of things that increase the gravity of leaving somebody that you don't want to be with. But ultimately, two single people, one can leave if they want to. That is part of the deal. They haven't necessarily done anything wrong. And so, you know, he had a little thing with you. He wasn't really into it. He wanted to sort of just keep you on ice. That was what he was doing. It's kind of common. Not okay. I don't like it. I don't think you should date somebody who does that to you. And so I'm trying to reason with you about why the fact that he did this, you can relax, you can release and let go. And I'll tell you what, is anybody who's ever treated you bad, whether you block them or not, if they really wanted to, they could find you and apologize, but that's not gonna happen. I don't think what this guy is, this, this guy is not treating this as the love of his life or anything. That's not what it is. Your trauma wound will make anybody into that who pays you some attention. And I'm not trying to put you down. I'm speaking from experience. Trauma wounds will just like do that to our minds. It's a distorted thinking thing. And if we are isolated and we don't have friends in our lives and we don't have tools, it can get very big. It can be so convincing that that is just, oh, it was the love of my life. I have to go get it. It is a possible scenario that people would have a love of their life situation and somebody screws it up or they screw it up and it doesn't come to pass and years pass and, you know, they come back together. That could be something like that but I don't hear the signs of that. There would be no way to say that somebody is the love of your life when all you'd had is this tiny, short, brief, painful, 
neglected little experience with them. But that's what trauma tells you. It's like that feeling, you know, ooh, the spooky, profound feeling. Like, what is that? It's love. And it's some old childhood thing. And I don't know how to control it exactly, but I know how to reason with yourself when it's happening. Get with your friends. Get with your tools. I have this dating course you can take um, and a membership where you can get involved with a whole bunch of people who are taking that course and my other courses and working on their healing and helping each other just stay real and honest and connected about what's going on as they date or as they take time off. So that, you know, it's just when we're together, it's a lot harder to go into delusion. When you're being honest with another person, it's a lot harder to go down the road of like blaming yourself for setting a boundary with somebody who was mistreating you. And it helps you stay in reality. And staying in reality is where all your power is. Reality, here, now. All your power is here. It's not like in fantasy and it's not in the past. It's not in the future. It's here in the little choices you make to decline to get involved with people who don't treat you well, to be open to people who do so far treat you well, and to have some standards along the way, and friends who help you remember your standards. We need friends. We need to be reminded, and that's okay. So I really would like for you to have that. You can find that in 12-step programs, or you know, some people get it in um, their religious community. Some people get it in a meditation group. You can come into my membership program. There's lots and lots of people. And if you like the tools that I teach, you can all use the same tools together. And it's very powerful. Wonderful things are happening in our membership program. So Gina, I would love for you to uh, change your pattern. So you said, how do I move past and finally let go? You just let go. You, you, you stop contact and you do the positive things that help make you strong. Living through trauma as a child can sometimes leave a person with what I call a developmental delay. And it's not uncommon that people with childhood PTSD are not necessarily stopped forever in their growth and maturation, but maybe maybe we go on pause sometimes and our emotional development and our life milestones kind of fall behind a little bit. Could be emotionally, it could be financially, it could be professionally. Sometimes it's all of it, right? I think when we do that, we know on some level that we're doing it and because what that means is that we're gonna to have to face eventually and take responsibility for our lives. There's these feelings that come up of like fear, sadness, maybe some regret, dread, because changing your life, uh, it's hard, it's hard work. It takes hours, it takes away time where you used to be able to kind of deal with your CPTSD symptoms. So it's, it's an important decision, but I get the gravity of it. And it's a very different approach than just kind of like hanging out in life and seeing what happens to actually say, I'm going to change my life. I'm going to head in a direction where I'm trying to go. When you're not yet able to take responsibility for your life, there's this temptation to blame your situation on other people or to use psychological narratives to make it sound like, well, of course you have to have this problem. Of course you can't act to change it because blah de blah this thing that happened in the past. It's like a narrative. But you do have choices. You're not totally helpless. There's a time in everyone's life when we do count on other people, some more than others. But when you are actually capable of changing your life and when dependency on other people is just sucking the life out of you, Everything depends on facing your life, facing what's needed, taking responsibility, even when it's hard and even when sacrifices are going to be required so that you can move forward towards the life that you want. So I have a letter today from someone I'll call Talia and she writes, 
Hi Anna, I discovered I have CPTSD about two years ago and I've been working on my issues in ACA groups. ACA, that's Adult Children of Alcoholics and Other Dysfunctional Families. It's a 12-step fellowship where a lot of people have found help. In that time, I left a very intense, toxic trauma bond that brought me to my bottom. I crawled out of it but felt like I needed a change and decided to move across the country with my ex-boyfriend and our five-year-old child. I have made it crystal clear from the onset that I'm not interested in another relationship with him. There are no romantic feelings between us, and I've done my best to set boundaries. He has his own unresolved CPTSD and sees boundaries as a threat, even smothering me with unwanted affection and making sexual advances that I always reject. Knowing this, I have continued to cohabitate with my ex and our child for over a year, sometimes using my kid as a scapegoat to not have to move out on my own. I was unemployed for a long time during the pandemic, and the idea of paying my own way seems daunting and impossible. All right, I'm circling that with my fairy pencil because I'm gonna read all the way through and then I'll come back and talk about some of the things I've circled. See if we can help Talia. My childhood was full of negative messages about money, so it's clear that my poor sense of security is a result of that. My ex has repeatedly blown up at me over seemingly unimportant discussions, threatening to throw me out, then later begging me to stay. I feel a responsibility to protect my child from his outbursts, but it's possible I'm making the situation worse by sticking around. Recently, I turned down a beautiful apartment nearby because staying with him to save money seemed like a logical choice. I regret not moving out when I had the chance and worry that I'm stifling my recovery by settling for less than I deserve. It feels like I don't trust myself to be an adult. My inner child doesn't feel safe. I'm aware that I put myself in this position and similar positions with other people all the time. CPTSD is still running parts of my life that keep me in a cycle of victimhood, recreating my parents' relationship where the mother always felt trapped and the father was always dissatisfied. How can I develop a better sense of security for myself when the fear of responsibility holds me back? All right, I'm so glad you wrote, Talia. Uh, it's so important because of this five-year-old you're raising that that you do exactly what you're doing, which is facing this and trying to find a better way. So good for you, okay? Big hugs for that. So let's go through. You discovered you have CPTSD about two years ago, and you've been working on your issues in ACA groups. And in that time, you left a very intense toxic trauma bond that brought you to your bottom. So it sounds like that relationship happened while you had a toddler. So a very intense toxic trauma bond with a toddler is some pretty heavy stuff, and I'm so glad you got healing for it, but I just, <clears throat> I kind of want to lay that as the foundation, because I felt like that kind of got glossed over in the story. I'm glad you mentioned it. You did mention it, but I think that's huge. I think that you, you were in a very bad place, and it caused a lot of instability and gave you a lot of fear about survival and maybe being able to parent your kid. I crawled out of it, but I felt like I needed a change and decided to move across the country with my ex-boyfriend. So I don't know what the change was. I know, you know that term that they have in 12-step is pull a geographic. So rather than heal something, one impulse that we have sometimes is to move somewhere else. But maybe because, maybe you had your reasons. 
and you needed to go somewhere else. I'm just putting a question mark on this because you're financially unable to support yourself in this new place. I don't know if you were able to or if you had resources or family or something where you were before, but it seems like a pretty shaky decision to move into a situation where you're that vulnerable, all right? but you felt like you needed a change and you decided to move with your ex-boyfriend. So this was some decision. And what I was curious about is who first initiated the move. Was he moving away and you decided to go with him? Or were you moving away and he came with you? What's interesting is you say that you've made it crystal clear from the beginning that you're not interested in another relationship. And I remember when I used to think that that counted as fair. What I've learned since then is that people who are desperate are not in a position to hold a boundary against somebody who's saying something like that. I've been on both sides of that situation. I'm gonna bet you have too, where somebody said, look, I'm not available for a relationship, but you kind of like lost yourself over it, right? Lost yourself over hoping, trying, pining, yearning, begging, you know, hitting a bottom over it, right? So what I'm hearing is that your ex-boyfriend is in a terrible place. You said there are no romantic feelings between us and yet he's constantly smothering you with unwanted affection and making sexual advances. So I just would say, I think you're missing there. He does have romantic feelings for you. He very much has romantic feelings for you. He's acting on them. You're living with him. You're right there in his house. You have a kid together. That structure, it's pretty hard to keep yourself out of it. He's kind of moving into sort of a natural role with the mother of his kid and his kid. And I totally respect that that's not the relationship you want, but here's the problem. You're living with him. You're living with him. And that is simply too much for somebody that feels that way about you. It's just too much. So you said you've done your best to set boundaries. So you said that's not what you want, but the boundary is just totally washed away by the cohabitation, okay. So he has his own unresolved CPTSD. That's usually who we go for, right? And he sees boundaries as a threat. And when you say boundaries as a threat, well, when you say, look, I'm not interested in you, that is a threat to the relationship. He's there. I don't know him. You, you didn't talk very much about your child or about the, uh, the love you guys have for this kid or if that's part of why you're together. Now I get it. I think a lot of people stay together for the kids and for a certain amount of time when my kids are small, their dad and I did that too until we couldn't anymore, until we couldn't. And I think up to a point, it is good for the kids to have their parents very close to them, but if the parents are fighting and losing their minds, that's not good for the kids. And I have, a, I have an idea for you that we'll get to in a minute. So you always reject him and knowing this, you've continued to live with him, with your kid, sometimes using the kid as a scapegoat to not have to move out on your own. So that's kind of, it seems like that's kind of what brought you into this situation. You have a fear and you, you know, you're saying this, I'm not like psychoanalyzing you. You've just kind of said, you have a fear of being responsible for your life and going out on your own. And it's no joke, a single mom with a kid, it's tricky um, working, having childcare, but five years old, you know, that's pretty good that now you're getting to school age and it's possible. I was a single mom for nine years with two kids and co-parenting with their dad. 
So I had them three or four days a week and he had them three or four days a week. And when you have both parents like geographically present, it's so helpful because you can cooperate on getting to school and birthday parties and getting homework done. And if you need to take a class or take a trip, um, the child can go to dad's house. So there's this really good opportunity ahead of you to take care of this. The other thing is if you can get flexible hours, and that's a lot more of a possibility these days than it ever was for work, you can work while your child is with their dad. So there's this is not an impossible situation. It sounds like it's about you being able to make money and work. And from your description of what happened in your relationship before that got you into ACA, where it was intense toxic trauma bond, you may have been taken out of your life and your professional development for quite a while. Five-year-old kid, lots of trauma, uh, you know, that's, I, I totally understand, but there's no time like the present for you to get your foot on the rung of the ladder of your career, to start working now and start making some money. It's hard, but all over the world, moms and dads are figuring this out. They figure out how to raise their kids. And I remember when I first split with my kid's dad, I was terrified. I didn't have anywhere near enough money. I had about uh, my income was maybe about 60% of what the house payment was. And what was I going to do? I also, I was self-employed. I needed to come up with like health insurance premiums and food and insurance and, uh, you know, clothes, everything, car. I just couldn't even see how I was going to do it. But you know what happened is when the relationship ended, I went through grief and panic and all these feelings. And then I got really busy. And I just sat down and I figured out, now what would I have to do? I figured out what would I have to make per hour? I need to make it at home. And it needs to be this much money for me to make ends meet and have a little left over. And I figured out that number. And I remember I went and got a couple of outfits. They weren't expensive. I got a haircut. I, I had had these um, kind of mom glasses at the time. They weren't very pretty. And I got some better looking glasses, but they weren't that much, you know, and <laughs> they were, I think without insurance, they were a couple hundred bucks. And I put all this money into it and I read some books and I just made a decision. I'm going to move forward with this. I'm going to figure out how to do this. It really wasn't long before it came to pass that I was making that amount of money. There were so many ways that my, my trauma, my, you know, living a life that wasn't worthy of me, you know, being stuck in this terrible relationship that I was in and it, trying to hide my life from everybody. It turns out that when I pulled out all the stops, there were so many things I could do to go forward. And I just have that feeling about you. You're the same. And so many, I've met women all over the world who have had to support kids out of all, seeming thin air. And we find a way, we find a way and you will too. And sometimes it means you might have to live in a tiny apartment for a while. Sometimes it means you're not going to have some of the things you're used to having in terms of the food you buy and the kind of shampoo you use and all that. Maybe you're already at that point, but there's always a way. And because of your 12 step recovery, I know you know this, that sometimes good things come to people who are really working on themselves. Good things come to people who are really working on themselves. And that's possible for you. You were unemployed for a long time during the pandemic and the idea of paying your own way seems daunting and impossible. Daunting, yes. Impossible, no. You're going to do this. The right thing to do is to get out from cohabitation with this guy who's completely losing his mind over you and is miserable and is creating this. Well, he's not creating it by himself. You guys are doing it together. He didn't have to live with you after what you said. You didn't have to live with him. 
in a way, you guys, this is the worst light I'm going to put on it. You guys are kind of using each other for what you want. You need the security. He wants the hope of a relationship. Meanwhile, your five-year-old at least has you two around um, through the age of five. And there's something to be said for that. When we have trauma, when we come from families that are messed up, when we're forming our own families and doing our best to put it together, sometimes it's a little funky, all right? But we, we, we keep making progress. I encourage you to just keep being positive, keep putting one foot in front of the other. You can do this for the sake of your kid. You can do this. You will find the energy within yourself. You will find the people who will help you. Then you say, my childhood was full of negative messages about money, so it's clear that my poor sense of security is a result of that. Well, I, I believe you that that affected you, but that's not, I think you have the poor sense of security right now because mentally you can't get your head around going out and working, raising a kid half time and working. I think that's where your insecurity is coming from. And you know what, that's good news because the messages you heard about money when you were a kid, that's water under the bridge. There's no changing that, there's no unhearing it. What you can change is your state of insecurity right now. And what your security is, is having a decent apartment, as tiny as it might be, and having enough money to live on. That is security, that's what it is. And then you said, my ex has rep repeatedly blown up at me over seemingly unimportant discussions, threatening to throw me out, then later begging me to stay. So that sounds to me, I'm gonna give him the benefit of the doubt, that sounds to me like a person who, as you said, has his own CPTSD and is going through trauma bonding with you. This is, for him, this is trauma bonding, where you move in with him and he gets hope, and then you dash all his hope, and he's blowing up at you because that's what people with CPTSD do when they're triggered. And honestly, if he's in love with you and he wants the family to stay together, he's going to get triggered. So as much as he's not going to want this, the merciful thing to do is to stop having yourself and your beautiful being right in front of him all the time under his nose, blocking him from developing a life that's healed from the relationship with you that he can't have back. That is the right and kind thing to do for him. And I have a feeling he'll calm down a lot. And the thing is, it's so important. You want him to be at his best. You don't want him all triggered and freaking out because he's the dad of your kid. And your kid needs a grounded, steady dad who's gonna role model like, I've got this, everything's okay. So you don't wanna be putting like triggers and trauma in the path of your child's father. And the same goes for you. Everything that's good for him, everything that's good for the kid is good for you. So this is all about goodness. It's all about goodness. And there's something, I see the sacrifice here, and it's, it's, it's sacrificing the dream that there was more flexibility than you're going to have for a while. When you have a school-age kid and you're a single mom, things are only, they don't have an infinite flexibility. You're, if the dad is in the picture and helping you with them, it's still a pretty darn good life. You get to have kids. And you know, when I was a single mom, those three nights that I had on my own were more than the married moms had <laughs> of small kids. I wasn't totally happy. Um, in fact, I was quite sad, especially about my littlest kid, about being separated. That's not what I wanted, but that's what I was facing, and I faced it. And the time that I was with my kids, I was able to give them my full attention. So I kind of worked out my life. So with kids, full attention. Without kids, focus on work, social life, all that. Go exercise and all that good stuff. I feel a responsibility to protect my child from his outbursts. Yeah, if he's throwing you out of the house, that's very scary for a kid to hear. I grew up with that kind of thing. You don't want to do that. But it's possible I'm making the situation worse by sticking around. It's definite. 
It's not just possible, it's making it worse. Recently, I turned down a beautiful apartment nearby because staying with him to save money seemed like the logical choice. I regret not moving out when I had the chance. There's other chances. There are many apartments in the sea. You can do this. I worry that I'm stifling my recovery by settling for less than I deserve. All right, I agree. Your recovery is getting stifled because your life is in a total cling mode of trying to hold things together and not change and not deal with the obvious, which is to become independent and to be able to have your own place and earn your own money and be able to take care of your kid in a good way and keep the best relationship with your child's dad as you can. And it's not that you're settling for less than you deserve. That's a little bit, this will sound bad, but it just sounds a little bit entitled. And nobody's entitled to have like things a certain way. Like we have to step up and we have, you're the mom, you know, you're the adult, you're the mom. And the mom is the one who makes the life that the kid deserves. And if anybody is settling for less than they deserve, I would say it's your ex because he's holding on to a relationship, hoping it'll turn into a romance. You know you're gonna leave, but he's settling for that. And of course, he deserves to have a proper partner too who totally loves him and who can be a step-parent to your child. And this can all work out very well in due time, but it can't go anywhere good so long as you're in this kind of toxic loop of using each other, of using each other. So you say, it feels like I don't trust myself to be an adult. Yeah, that's what it looks like, that you don't trust yourself to be an adult, but you are and you can, and your inner child doesn't feel safe. And I would just say, you know, I understand this concept of the inner child, but right now I don't think it's serving you. It's not about whether you feel safe. Right now you have a real life child and your real life child isn't safe. And your real life child needs to feel that home life is stable. Even if it's a two household home, it needs to feel reliable and stable. And your kid needs to look at their parents' faces and go, okay, the parents have got this, everything's okay. So I'm just gonna say, way preference the real child ahead of the concept you have of an inner child. It's not about you feeling safe. It's about you taking action. You are safe to take action. There's no danger here from you working and, and caring for your life and for your responsibility for your kid. You're going to feel good. It feels very good. There's a really good feeling when you, you know, pick up your kid, you come home, you have your little humble dinner together. I was so poor a lot of the time I was raising my kids. So it was often nothing fancy. Sometimes it was nice. And you sit down and you have dinner, and you get the kids to bed and you wash the dishes and you get to watch a little TV or talk to somebody on the phone. And uh, it's a good feeling. And it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work, but it's a good feeling and it's very satisfying. So don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. The world favors people who stand up and take care care of their kids. They do. So CPTSD is still running parts of my life that keep me in a cycle of victimhood. Yep, but you're not a victim anymore. No more. Recreating your parents' relationship? No more. You don't have to. Where your mother felt trapped and your father was always dissatisfied. It sounds like you're both of those things right now, but you don't have to be trapped and you don't have to be dissatisfied. You can move to a higher level and have everything you want, including a sense of security. So that's what I see going on. If the fear about all of this is getting the better of you, and for people with CPTSD, who doesn't have fear getting the better of them? I'm just gonna really encourage you to take my free class on the daily practice. 
I always mention it, sometimes I talk a little more in length, but that's what it's about. It's about getting free of the fear. Not pretending it's not there, but just having a way to get those thoughts of like, oh, I just you know, fear I don't know how to do this. I'm resentful at my ex because fear he has all these expectations and fear he's not cooperating and fear he's gonna leave our lives and fear, you know, whatever the fears are. Fear I can't get a good apartment again. Fear I blew that opportunity. You get it on paper. You ask for it to be removed. You rest in meditation and just see if afterwards you don't feel a little bit better. Some people say, I can't do that with kids. And I'm like, you can, you can, <laughs> you can. And um, I figured out all kinds of strategies to do it. Sometimes when I was driving the kids and they were asleep in their car seats, I'd pull over while they, after they fell asleep and do my writing and meditation there. Sometimes I had high chairs longer than you need to put kids in high chairs so that I could just sort of pop them in there and put on a cartoon and put and just sit in the room with them and do my writing and meditation right in the room with them and then opening one eye are they okay are they okay yep they're okay that's what tv is for <laughs> it's to help you get your meditation done so <laughs> that's how it can be done and there of all the times in my life when i needed writing and med meditating it was definitely while i was raising my kids and they were small now they're big now one of them uses the techniques themselves and i feel so good about the transition i made from the difficult relationship I was in with their dad to being able to care for them really well on my own. And now today, having a friendship with their dad, we're each remarried, we have a happy family. I have a class, by the way, called Positive Shared Custody. I'll put a link to it down below in the description section. It's not on my general course page because it's not really under the fairy umbrella, but it's a course I made with my kid's dad. He happens to be a family law attorney. And it's all the strategies that we learned over the years about how to do this, how you can uh, create harmony in a two-household family and have some boundaries and support, above all, you know, help the kids to help them, put them first and keep keep their lives first and foremost and their happiness. So I feel like we did a pretty good job considering it was not possible for us to stay together. So I wish you the very best. It's so important. This can be a positive thing. I think because you're in the wrong relationship, when you've got your sea legs on your own, you're gonna feel much happier. Thank you so much for listening. If you love my content, think about joining my membership program. You can find out more information about that and all my courses and coaching programs at crappychildhoodfairy.com. Remember, healing is possible. People with childhood PTSD can have a wonderful life. Sometimes we just need a few workarounds. I'll see you next time.